0: Just two months ago, podcaster and self-professed Jeffrey Combs fanatic Molly Oblivion mysteriously disappeared. Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I... What is that? What what the fuck? Molly's whereabouts remain unknown. Oh, no, I'm right here. Hi. Oh... I thought you were dead. Nope, just took a break. I do that. A lot, actually. Well, how do you explain the audio file we just heard? Where it sounds like, you know, you're dying? (laughs) I wasn't dying. That was just a regular Friday for me. Oh. Okay. Were you hoping I was dead? Of course not. It's just that if you're not dead, I'm out of a job, so... Ah, yeah, yeah. This is awkward. A little awkward, yeah. Our guests are here, unfortunately, still alive. we must get to to that get you out There is no way out. of exactly the <laughs> Stay the drugs and stay out of the basement. You are listening to Final Girl Friday. Welcome back to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, I'm going to be doing something that everyone else in the world has done. It's a first for me. I'm going to do an official ranked list. By official, I just mean something, you know, I've put thought into. Timma and I did an impromptu ranking of the Nightmare films back when we talked about Dream Warriors, but that was very spur of the moment. This is the first time I've ever sat down and really put a lot of time into ranking the films of a given franchise. And I don't think I could have chosen a more polarizing franchise for my maiden voyage. Tonight we're looking at paranormal activity. Let's watch a movie, I don't want to go to sleep yet. Why not? Because I'm scared. Now, Paranormal Activity is not my favorite horror franchise by a mile, but in recent years I've really come to appreciate it for the fun, supernatural fluff that it is. And I owe a lot to this franchise for bringing me around to found footage, which has, over time, become one of my favorite subgenres. Nobody asked for this, it's not here by popular demand, it's just where my head is at lately, so, yep paranormal activity. That's what we're doing. I'll wrap up with a few additional found footage recommendations. I was going to do holiday recommendations because I'm not sure if I'm going to be back by the end of the year, but I'm just in a real found footage place. Before I can dive into all of that, I do have a giant handful of points of interest. First things first, I cannot believe I'm about to say this, but guys, I am so excited for Studio 666. Directed by B.J. McDonnell, set to be released at the end of February, Studio 666 tells the story of the Foo Fighters trying to record their 10th album in a big-ass mansion in Encino that appears to be some kind of hotbed for demonic activity. Dave Grohl becomes a conduit for said demonic energies, and hilarity slash brutality ensues. This movie looks like it's going to be such a good time. I absolutely adore the premise. I think it's hilarious. It doesn't seem like it's taking itself too seriously. It seems like the guys are having a blast. And in addition, in addition to all of that, I'm personally looking forward to seeing BJ McDonnell in action again. McDonnell, who is predominantly a cam operator, directed all three of the music videos that make up Slayer's Repentless Kilogy, which is a brutally violent and all-around good time short film consisting of the three videos he directed all strung together by a narrative. It features appearances from people like Tyler Maine, Tony Moran, um, Derek Mears, among others. Even if you're not a fan of Slayer, if you haven't seen their Killaji, I recommend it because it is such an experience. So to think that the guy who directed those incredible music videos is now making a rock and roll horror movie with the Foo Fighters, I just, I have really high hopes for this. A couple of other trailers I saw recently that stood out to me uh, were first for Stoker Hills, directed by Benjamin Lewis, which is the story of three college students making a horror movie who are then kidnapped and tortured. It features John Beasley and Danny Nucci as well as Tony Todd as their professor. I am very anxious to hear about your latest project. It's basically Pretty Woman meets The Walking Dead. It's about zombie prostitutes that take over a small town. Okay, all right, well, it's your GPA, guys. Joker Hills is coming out in the middle of January along with uh, a film called See For Me, directed by Randall Okita, which stars voice actor Skylar Davenport in their film debut as a visually impaired woman house-sitting when the house she is sitting is invaded. Using a sensory assistance app, which connects her with a volunteer, the two of them team up to take down her assailants. This definitely looks more like a thriller than a horror film, but I don't know, I think it's interesting. It's a unique premise, it has elements that put me in mind of like hush and don't breathe. I also think it's cool that Davenport, being legally blind, was cast as a character with a visual impairment. Hey, how can I help you? It's me, Sophie. There's people in the house. They're looking for me. Just stay calm. Where are they now? The new Texas Chainsaw Massacre trailer has dropped, and this one, I'm just, I'm not sure how to feel about it. I mean, on one hand, I do recommend checking the trailer out. It's, it's a good trailer. It has all the grit and grime one might hope to see in a TCM film, and they managed to resist the urge to use those same in-fucking-furiating staccato strings that every other horror trailer of the last few years has used, so points to them for that. I also think it's ambitious to do a direct sequel to the original after all this time. It's a bold move. But on the other hand, I'm staunchly against retconning canon, which seems to be the only thing Hollywood producers are interested in when it comes to these classic franchises. Thankfully, Steve Murlo's much-anticipated fan film The Sawyer Massacre is now set to begin filming on March 5th. So excited we finally have a date for that. And not only do we know when it'll be underway, we also know now that Edwin Neal, the hitchhiker from from the original Texas Chainsaw has been added to the Sawyer Massacres cast, which is just so exciting. Congratulations, guys. <laughs> Things are looking better every day for Scream 5, with new and oddly sexy posters teasing the identity of the new killer, as well as a featurette interviewing cast members and exploring what makes Ghostface an icon of the genre. I have gone back and forth so many times about Scream 5. It has just been a roller coaster of emotion with this movie for me, but right now I'm looking forward to it. I'm starting to get really happy. There's things that happen in this that are kind of shocking. I still can't believe it. I've been through this a lot. Speaking of horror icons, there is a new-ish docuseries on Shudder called Behind the Monsters that is just top-notch. I absolutely love it. It's only a six-part series, so it's easy to knock out in like half a day. If you have a Shudder subscription, just treat yourself. Each of the six episodes looks at a different iconic monster or villain from the films we know and love. You've got Michael Myers, Candyman, the Candyman episode was my personal favorite, Chucky, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Pinhead. The interviews are many and informative. I mean, for those of us who have been sort of steeped in these bigger franchises for a long time. There isn't a whole lot of new information being offered, but it's really fun to see these iconic monsters framed in a new way. And the the quality of the docuseries is just, like I said, top-notch. I'm really looking forward to the second season. Fingers crossed that we get one. For a little recommended reading, over at Dread Central, Shirai Bohannon, uh, I sincerely hope I'm pronouncing their name correctly, brings us five movies that would make killer stage adaptations. I enjoyed this list in general. It was cool to see the the reasoning that Justification behind each film included in it, but I wanted to talk about it especially because one of the films on this list is The Strangers. For those of you who've been with me for a while, you might remember I have mixed feelings about The Strangers. It's not, you know, one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but it's not my favorite home invasion film, and I've often regarded it as being just a tiny bit overrated. However, reimagining it in my head as a stage production actually helps. In fact, reading what Shirai had to say kind of made me want to go back and watch the movie again, which... I don't think that's ever happened to me. In the article, Bohannon says, it would have been easier to adapt The Strangers for the stage than it was to make the sequel. We have a small cast, isolated location, and the soundtrack as an official extra character. Also, home invasions are some of the scariest movies by default. Just the thought of watching The Strangers unfold a few feet away from me is hard on my spirit. The whole article is a thought-provoking read, but I just, I wanted to give a shout out to the author for softening me to The Strangers. Just a tiny little bit. Moving on to recommended listening, I am painfully late to this party, but I've recently started listening to Joe Lynch and Adam Green's podcast, The Movie Crypt, and holy shit, that is a lot of great content. I don't know how I went so long without hearing it. They've interviewed everybody, from members of their inner circle like Kane Hodder and Corey English, to John Carl Buchler, Daniel Harris, Ernie Hudson, and even Danny Pudi from Community. I recently started listening to their episode with Alex Proyas, which, incidentally, I'm pretty sure was recorded during the Popcorn Fright's Film Festival where he announced he was working on a Dark City TV series. Uh it's such an awesome listen so far. All of them are. If you're a fan of horror films and good conversation, I just I cannot recommend the movie crypts enough. And welcome to another edition of the movie Crypt. I'm Adam Green. I'm really tired. Yeah. Last but not least, there is a new feature-length film in the works from Archico Productions who brought us Sharp Candy, The Wax That Drips, The Things We Bloom. This film is called The Demon of Serling, written and directed by Dylan R. Nix, and it follows a man who discovers his next-door neighbor is a serial killer. From there, an unlikely friendship is born with hilarious and presumably gruesome consequences. I think this film is going to be so interesting, blending together multiple genres. You've got holiday horror, dark comedy, drama. Although the film is being self-funded, so it's going to happen no matter what. They have launched an Indiegogo campaign with a flexible goal of $1,000, which they have already met and surpassed. I'm so excited for them. There are 44 days left in the campaign, and the rewards range from a $5 end credit to a $250 associate producer credit with Blu-rays, props, and even a board game thrown in. I'm really excited to see this film come to fruition for many reasons, not the least of which is that The Demon of Serling is being scored by our very own Gory Rory. Gory Rory. I think that pretty much sums up the bulk of what I wanted to talk about today. There was so much more and I ended up you know kind of cutting things out because god it would have been like a 30 minute long news segment for now let's just dive into the movies because we have seven movies to get through tonight i won't be lingering too long on any of them nor will i be digging too deeply into the production side of things i would recommend if you have access to paramount plus checking out the unknown dimension which is a very well-made documentary that was released alongside next of kin which chronicles the production of all seven paranormal films it's just it's a great resource for behind the scenes information i had such a great time watching it. It also kind of made me feel slightly less annoyed by some of the things that I'm not as crazy about with some of these movies. So yeah, The Unknown Dimension. I recommend checking it out. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen preferably all the films in the Paranormal Activity franchise, proceed with caution. There will be many spoilers ahead. Activity. This franchise, you know, it just has everything, just every conceivable thing one might want from a series of movies about weird shit happening in people's houses, and a few things no one would ever want and didn't ask for. It's a for better or for worse situation. The paranormal movies have demons, witches, Ouija boards, pool parties, creepy children, mysterious symbols, pets that know exactly what's going on and yet no one pays attention to them, awkward sex tapes, haunted toys, spirit photography sort of... Earthquakes, jewelry making, time travel, and that's honestly just scratching the surface. It's a little bizarre to me sitting here knowing I'm about to talk about how much I enjoy most of the movies in this franchise, less because of how wackadoo they are, and more because it's one of the world's most popular found footage franchises. And I hated found footage for like over 20 years. I mean, I just wanted absolutely nothing to do with it for the majority of my life. I think a big part of my aversion to the subgenre was that my first experience with found footage was the Blair Witch Project. Back in 99, I saw it in the theater when it came out. It was sort of a two-prong problem because we saw it at Regal Cinemas in Middletown, Ohio. I didn't get my first movie theater job until I guess it would have been 2007, 2008. But I would guarantee that fire safety regulations were, were the same in 99 as they were when I started working at theaters. But for whatever reason, at Regal that night, the theater was so packed. There were people lined up at the back of the theater. There were people standing in the aisles, people sitting on each other's laps. Not only was it uncomfortably crowded, the crowd themselves were really loud and rowdy. It's not like that's something that that necessarily bothers me, but with something like the Blair Witch Project, especially it being my first experience with found footage, it kind of detracted from the overall effectiveness of the film. There was also a man sitting just a few seats down from me who was audibly dry heaving through like the whole last third of the film film, which really killed a lot of its charm. So you had that you had what for me was just one of the worst theater going experiences of my life. And then add to that the fact that I was one of many, many people who were duped by the marketing. I absolutely believed at that time that the Blair Witch Project was something real, that it happened to real people. And while I didn't go so far as to rally to Burkittsville and offer to help search for the kids or anything, I imagine those people were probably even more pissed off than I was. But like, For me, Blair Witch was the first movie to ever embarrass me, you know? So there was, at that age, like, quite a bit of bitterness there for me. I just walked away from the whole Blair Witch Project experience feeling like found footage was just one of the worst things that could happen. In fact, in 2009, my friends from Splatterhouse showed Romero's Diary of the Dead at their house, and I didn't realize it was a found-footage movie. About ten minutes in to the film, I stood up, declared that Romero had sold out, (laughs) walked out onto the porch and spent the remainder of the evening alone and grumpy. It was unfair of me to punish an entire subset of horror films for what Blair Witch had done to me. And there were things that I just didn't realize then about found footage, you know? Like, what an effective delivery system for horror stories it is, and how much sense that makes when you consider its roots in epistolary literature, meaning novels told as a series of letters or documents, which is one of the most popular and effective forms of storytelling in horror fiction. Frank dracula the call of cthulhu something about presenting horrific events in a way that feels as real as possible to your audience it just works you know it creates a layer of authenticity that i think is hard to achieve in any other way and the other parent to found footage of course is one that is close to my heart which is just being broke wanting to do something creative wanting to produce something but not having the money to do it quote properly in its earliest days found footage was a lot less about style and a lot more about just needing or wanting to make Make a film on a tiny budget. In the unknown dimension, that documentary I mentioned earlier, Dean Alioto or Alioto, Alioto, the director of the McPherson Tape, one of the godfathers of found footage, laid this out pretty clearly with a story about how his friend was able to invest only sixty-five hundred dollars in him to make a movie, and for that money, a home movie was really the best option, which in turn helped birth this entirely new way of of scaring people. And inspiration for found footage comes from pretty much everywhere there there are a variety of ways to tell a story in that style. You have films like The McPherson Tape, Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity, which are full-fledged found footage films. That was a lot of alliteration. <laughs> they were found footage films throughout, and they fit well within Aliato's definition of found footage. Found footage movie is footage that was found, the whole thing. Ideally, it's, it's not cut, it's not edited together, it's all one long piece. <laughs> I think these are the films that we tend to think of most when we think about the subgenre, but there are also films like Cannibal Holocaust and Digging Up the Marrow, which are faux documentaries that incorporate found footage elements in as part of their narrative. Even films like April Fool's Day from 1986, which just used the home video style at the beginning as a kind of tee-up for the narrative that followed. You can incorporate these elements or you can rely on them entirely. In most cases, they do lend an additional layer of authenticity, of believability to their stories. So it just took me a while to come around to all of that. And I personally have to give the credit to Paranormal Activity for opening my mind and allowing me to learn all of this. Just a few short years ago, I don't know if it was because I was bored or just craving a new horror experience, I finally sat down and watched Paranormal Activity for the first time. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just that enough time had passed. Uh, Since 99, I mean, it had been about two decades, so one would imagine enough time had passed. Or maybe I was just finally in the right frame of mind, I was kind of blown away. It was so entertaining and at times very disturbing. There was so much fun experimentation happening uh, with the execution of the scares in the first paranormal that in my opinion, it's a film that at the very least should be studied. And as I made my way through the sequels, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed almost all of them. After that, I went through a huge found footage phase. I went back and I watched tons of the movies that I had missed out on. Cloverfield, Wreck, Creep, As Above, So Below, and I loved all of them to varying degrees. Well, Except Diary of the Dead. <laughs> my love for Romero could outshine the sun. I just, I still think that that film is far too theatrical for the style. It just feels way too scripted for me. And it just, it just doesn't work in my opinion. But other than that, I've enjoyed almost every found footage film that I have seen since first watching Paranormal Activity. I even started to warm up to The Blair Witch Project. It's still not one of my favorites, but I've come to respect it and enjoy it in a way that I never could have back in 99. All of this is to paint a clearer picture of why the paranormal franchise has become very important to me. As I said, it opened me up to a whole realm within the horror genre to which I had been entirely closed off. I feel forever indebted to the paranormal films. That being said, not every film in this franchise is a winner. Some are more frightening than others, some are more generally enjoyable than others. A couple, in my personal opinion, completely miss the mark, so let's just dive into them and see where they land on my personal paranormal spectrum. (laughs) I'll be ranking the movies from best to worst, which I realize is An unconventional direction, but I think it's the direction that will require the least amount of jumping around on the timeline. Unfortunately, my love of these films doesn't coincide with the order in which they were released, so we're gonna be jumping around a bit either way, which I guess is apropos for the paranormal (laughs) franchise. I do have a small but specific set of criteria I'm considering when looking at each of these films to determine where they fall. The first being, how scary is it? I think that should be the number one consideration when looking at a found footage film. Is it effective? Does it scare me? The second thing, which kind of ties into the first, is how well does the movie justify the use of its cameras? I would all but guarantee it's going to feel like I'm nitpicking that as I go through each of these movies. But it's, it's a very important detail for me. I think when you're creating a found footage film, the position and use of your cameras is a key element to scaring your audience, immersing them and really helping them, allowing them to believe that it is real. An excellent example of a found footage movie that perfectly justifies the use of its cameras would be The Blair Witch Project. I reiterate, I thought that shit was real. (laughs) And then the third consideration is how much do I care about the characters. In this subgenre? you often spend quite a bit of time at the beginning watching everyday people live out their everyday lives. So if the people are not likable or interesting, or at the very least relatable, I think it's easy to, you know, get bored and kind of slip away. I feel that found footage is most effective when you can invest, not just in the scenario, but in the characters themselves. So those are the three bits of criteria I'm considering the most. also be awarding bonus points to any of the films that flesh out or call back to the lore in ways that actually work and encourage the continuation of a cohesive narrative. So the more convoluted the sequel and the further it drives us away from what made the story so interesting to begin with, the less points it gets. Hey, here we go. At the very top of my list, at number one, we have Paranormal Activity 5, The Marked Ones. Did you mess those guys up at the park? Are you my guardian angel? Written and directed by Christopher Landon, who along with editor Gregory Plotkin was responsible for the lion's share of the paranormal stories, The Marked Ones is often placed pretty low on lists like these and it kills me, because this is my favorite of the films, by far. I think it's a refreshing take on what had become a pretty tired formula. While the movies leading up to this one primarily focused on upper-middle-class families, who were usually right in the thick of the demonic dealings of the midwives, The Marked Ones takes us out of the quiet suburbs and drops us into a bustling Latino community in Oxnard, where a young high school graduate named Jesse gradually falls victim to the coven as it lurks on the outskirts of his life. Our heroes and villains are both, bystanders in this story through most of it. The film before this one dabbles in that idea, but The Marked Ones embraces it completely and nails it. It stars street performer Andrew Jacobs as Jesse, Jorge Diaz as his best friend Hector, and Renee Victor as Grandma Irma, aka the best character in this franchise. We also see the return of Katie Featherstone and Mika Sloat, as well as Molly Ephraim as Allie Ray. One of the most common criticisms this franchise receives is that it has a tendency to rehash and recycle its own Techniques and scares, which is true. But I also understand it. When you're working from films as simple and as successful as the first three paranormal activities, it's hard to stray too far from what works. As the series progressed, they tried a couple of times to bring something new to the table, and it typically fell short. But that's not the case with the marked ones. So let's consider the criteria. Firstly, how scary is this film? In my opinion, this is the scariest film in the franchise. I know a lot of people won't agree with me, but this movie scares me. A lot of the scares are abrupt and shocking, but not in a traditional jump scare kind of way. It's more like a piano falling from the sky. Well, in this case at one point there is a literal body falling from the sky, and it works. Where the previous films relied heavily on stable cameras filming a whole lot of nothing to keep us watching, guessing, waiting for something to happen, The Marked Ones goes the other way. There's very little downtime in this movie. Little opportunity for you as a viewer to pay too much attention to what's going on in the background, which is really interesting when you consider that so much of what's happening in this film is happening in the figurative background. You have Jesse and Hector running around with their new video camera, shooting a bunch of random stupid stuff that teenagers do, like sledding down the stairs at Jesse's apartment in a laundry basket, setting off fireworks in an alleyway, making Jesse's dog dance, and as all of these things are happening, very abrupt shit that relates to the midwives and the demons will just sort of come crashing into their lives, and it takes them a long time to realize that these things are connected, and that they're dangerous drawing some symbol right on the girl yeah with blood i think Man, it was like some red shit we don't know if it's blood or anything it looked like a ritual or something and the girl was like i'm talking about it, she was gone she's probably a like you know she's running a whorehouse it creates a tense and unique pacing as we the audience know right away that the main characters are in trouble, but it takes Jesse and Hector a really long time to fully appreciate that. By the time they do, it's way too late. Jesse falls victim to the midwives, eventually becoming possessed, which makes for a heart-wrenching transformation from charming and sweet protagonist to all-out monster. Now, I'm mindful of the fact that the abrupt nature of the scares and the peripheral presence of the midwives, these things are defiant of the expectations created for us by the previous films. So I I can't say for sure how well this movie would work on its own, but man, as a sequel... It's fucking scary. The next question is, how well does The Marked Ones justify the use of its cameras? I personally feel that it justifies them very well, almost as well as the second film, which in my opinion is the one that does it the best. There isn't a whole lot of superfluous filming, and the camera feels naturally social, the way we tend to use cameras today. The only time that I feel the camera is out of place, or that the filming doesn't make much sense, is during the climax, but by that time they've done such a good job, I think it's forgivable. And besides, they use that camera to finally show us Mika getting killed, so I'm on board. Which brings me to the question, how much do I care about the characters in The Marked Ones? A lot. I adore Jesse and Hector, especially Hector. My heart just immediately goes out to him, and it's fun and interesting to see him graduate from the role of the best friend to the leading man as things unfold. What do you think You want Sherlock Holmes? What the fuck? Sherlock Holmes. You're Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. The Marked Ones also features my all-time favorite character in the paranormal movies, Grandma Irma. She is fantastic. She has a great relationship with her grandchildren, an adorable personality. The performance that Victor gives is just so incredibly lovable, it's impossible not to fall in love with Irma, which makes it all the more impactful when she gets hurt. You know what I mean? We also have Arturo, a gang member, whose older brother was marked by the midwives, and it's just so damn entertaining to watch a gang member try to deal with the midwives. You know, they show up at Grandma Lois's house with shotguns. They have no idea what they're dealing with. We have never seen anything like it before. So you have a lovable and interesting cast of characters depicted naturally, realistically. They were cast so well that I just care. I care what happens to them. Also, one final note in this category. I love that we're seeing a friendship taxed by the midwives and the demons instead of just a romantic relationship or, you know, a nuclear family. We're seeing a whole new way in which the midwives can affect people's lives. So in addition to this being, for me, the scariest parent Normal activity film, as well as the one with the most likable cast of characters, I have to award it quite a few bonus points for contributing to the lore in a meaningful way. I absolutely love how they built on the lore of the previous films in the marked ones. If you build this door, mm-hmm. it's like a you could travel through time. Right? Man, she could travel through time. Why the hell is she stay in this shitty ass apartment? Not time portal my ass to the, <laughs> the Bahamas or something. No, it's- There are two distinct things that were brought into this story that I think really do wonders for fleshing out the lore of the earlier movies. Firstly, I am so happy they brought Allie back. I was so happy to see her again and to find out a little bit more about what she's been doing in the wake of what happened to her family. I just can't express how pleased I am that what she's doing is helping other people who are going through this. To me, that's a huge point in this film's favor. They brought a final girl back, they didn't kill her off, and they gave her trauma meaning. The midwives will mark... Um, an unborn male in utero and then they wait for the baby to mature until he's ready to be possessed. But why now? The other thing I feel earns it the most points, and if you had explained this to me on paper... Prior to me seeing this film, I may have laughed you out of the room. I might never have believed this could be something I would enjoy, but I love the way this movie ends. It brings the entire franchise back around to the beginning. It answers a question that a lot of us had had for a long time. When Hector, who is pursuing Jesse to Grandma Lois's house, is then chased by him and ends up running through a doorway that spits him out in Katie and Mika's living room at the end of the very first film. Disoriented, trying to figure out where he is, he wanders into the kitchen where Katie, of course, is possessed by Toby. She turns around, looks directly at Hector, and starts screaming bloody murder for Mika. He runs into the kitchen, sees Hector there, freaks out a little bit, but then Katie slash Toby, who was just trying to get Mika downstairs, proceeds to kill him. I thought it was a stroke of genius. It was so haunting, disturbing, energetically consistent with everything that had come before. It would have been a beautiful way to end the franchise. Now, I'm not just saying this as somebody who hates Mika, although, guys... I fucking hate Mika. <laughs> I just thought it was such a unique twist. It wasn't the ending that Landon initially envisioned. It was originally supposed to end with an exorcism at a church where we see shots of the demon itself, and I'm so glad they changed it. I just personally feel that these films are so much scarier when we don't actually see the demon. The only complaint I have about the marked ones is the use of CG on Oscar's arm. When Jesse is confronted by Oscar, who delivers some exposition about the midwives, he shows Jesse a bite mark on his arm, similarly to the marks that we see on Katie and Christy in the first two films, but for whatever reason they chose to show these like CG worm-like things moving under Oscar's skin, which was not consistent with what we had seen in the previous movies, and it was just distracting and felt really out of place, but that's it, that's my only criticism. So looking back over the criteria, I find this film incredibly scary, I think it justifies its cameras really well, it's my favorite cast of characters, and I think it contributes to the lore in a couple of really creative and fascinating ways. So top notch. It's unfortunate. This movie was marketed as a spin-off, which it isn't. That gave people the very wrong impression going in. It was also the only paranormal activity film that wasn't released in the month of October. It was pushed back and released in January instead. And I think a lot of people were suffering from fatigue, both for the paranormal franchise and found footage in general at the time that this came out. So that just bums me out because to me, The Marked Ones is the best film in the franchise. Moving on from The Marked Ones, my second favorite Paranormal Activity film is the second Paranormal Activity film, Paranormal Activity 2. Listen, this is gonna sound totally crazy, and I know that, but I'm having this feeling lately that, that maybe whatever happened to us when we were little, I think it's starting again. Directed by Kip Williams, written by Michael Perry, Tom Pabst, and Christopher Landon, this is essentially a prequel to the first paranormal film, although part of it does run congruent with the first film and then fills in a gap of something that happened at the end of the first movie, so it's mostly a prequel, kind of congruent, and then a little bit of a sequel, which sounds a lot more confusing than it is. They somehow manage to tell three stories at once in a way that works. Where the first film followed Katie and Mika, this one centers around Katie's younger sister Christy and her family, most notably their new baby Hunter, in the months leading up to Katie's disappearance. It stars Sprague Graydon as Christy, Brian Beland as her husband Daniel, and Molly Ephraim as her stepdaughter Allie. The majority of the story is told through security cameras after their house is broken into, and I know I said I wasn't going to go too deep into the production side of things, but I think a big part of why this film is so good lies in how Kip Williams got involved with it. He, along with many other potential directors, were given a questionnaire alongside the first movie, which asked him things like, what is it that makes this film scary? What makes it believable? I think if you're determined to make a sequel, or prequel, to cash in on a popular film, that's a decent way to go about finding the right guy for it. He had a deep understanding of Paranormal Activity, and I think that shows through Paranormal Activity too. There was also still quite a bit of innovation and ad-libbing involved with the production of this one, and the improvisational nature of the first couple of movies is one of my favorite things about them. It's something they moved further and further away from with each installment, but it was still going strong here in the second film. So even though this one is a little more scripted, there is a bigger cast, a bigger budget, and the desire to replicate the success of the first film was looming over it, the spirit of the original film is still very much alive. So let's look at how scary this movie is. I think the second film is pretty scary. There's a lot less dialogue, which I realize can be a little daunting for some, but for me at this time I found it unsettling. The lack of action coupled with the security cam footage evokes a persistent sense of of dread, forcing the audience to study each scene carefully in anticipation. It's a very withholding film, and when they do finally deliver a scare, it's usually pretty worthwhile. I especially enjoy that infamous moment when all the cabinets in the kitchen come flying open while Christy's just sitting there reading a magazine. The effects are much more in line with what one expects from a paranormal movie, but given that this was only the second release, it doesn't feel played out yet. There are also a handful of fun moments where the characters are being fucked with without even realizing it, when Allie and her boyfriend attempt to contact the demon with a Ouija board, and they're so busy laughing and joking they don't notice it's actually trying to tell them something. I like how casually the horror sort of pokes its head out through the characters in this movie. Apart from a gimmick where Toby apparently hates automatic pool cleaners, I'd say it gets a solid... B+. Plus. How well does this film justify the use of its cameras? I would say that this film justifies the cameras better than any of the others. It's actually the primary reason it holds the second spot on my list. It's a very immersive, very real-feeling film, in my opinion. You have two distinct reasons why the family is filming here. The first is mostly related to Hunter. They film when they bring Hunter home, they film his first birthday, just all the normal stuff that people would normally have a camera for. And then the other reason for filming is, as I mentioned, after the break-in, they install security cameras. And from that point on, pretty much the entirety of the story is told through those cameras. You never have to ask the question, why are they filming right now? Because the cameras are fixed in the house. I think it's brilliant and it feels really believable. As for the characters, how much do I care about them? I'm not crazy about the guys in this movie, like Daniel, Christy's husband, or Allie's boyfriend, and of course Mika. But all of the ladies in this one are fabulous. I adore Sprague Graydon, so of course I love Christy. Martine is wonderful. Allie is such a fun and interesting character, and of course she becomes even more so in The Marked Ones. And it's always nice to see Katie. It's like Michael Myers has wandered onto the screen. And while I may not be wild about Daniel, he is very dadly. A perfectly realistic dad. And I don't want to hear any more of this haunted house crap, okay? That's enough. You guys are driving me crazy. End of story. He's also a much more mature and supportive partner than Mika. He makes better choices comparatively. I would say it's a really likable cast of characters. I did come to care about them. Maybe not quite as much as I cared about the characters in The Marked Ones, but but a lot. Bonus points for contributing to the lore in a meaningful way. I feel like it's kind of a given, as this is a prequel. It was the first film to really flesh out the lore of Paranormal Activity. It's the film that introduces us to the midwife storyline. It introduces us to Hunter, a pretty major character in the franchise. This is also where we learn that Toby actually had no interest in Katie to begin with. His interest was in possessing Christy, so that he could claim Hunter for his own. Daniel and Martine transfer Toby's attention from Christy to Katie, so this film explains why every happens to Katie and Mika in the first movie, which I think is very creative and a commendable way to do the prequel. I must be losing my mind. I just... (laughs) I feel like there's stuff going on at our house, to the point where I actually told Mika about it and I'm sure he thinks I'm crazy. So yeah, I know I didn't really spend a whole lot of time on this one. I just feel like it's um, it's a really solid direct sequel slash prequel. It does its job. It creeps me out. It makes me care. And it leaves me wanting more. Coming in at number three, we have the first paranormal activity. See, this is why it scares me is because you don't take it seriously. I take it seriously. I think it's pretty like... You have a camera in my face in the bathroom. Directed and conceived by then-video game programmer Oren Pelly written by both Pelly and basically the whole tiny cast and crew, the first paranormal activity tells a very simple story of Katie and her boyfriend Mika, who live together in a posh McMansion in Southern California, who at the very start of the film have already been experiencing you know, paranormal activity. <laughs> Mika, who we learned in the second film, saw Daniel's video camera, decides to buy one of his own to film this activity, to capture some of it on film for research purposes, and also because he's a fucking idiot. As they continue to film, the presence in their home becomes more hostile and determined, ultimately possessing Katie, who kills Mika and then disappears. This film was shot at Oren Pelly's home for a total of $15,000, and as I mentioned earlier, this whole film was essentially improvised. Going back to the unknown dimension, I just I just want to mention that documentary one more time because it is so much fun to listen to Oren Pelly and the original cast talk about the production of that film. I'm so tempted to go into a lot of it, but I've already been talking for so long and I have like so many more movies to get through. So if you can watch that documentary. So how scary is Paranormal Activity? I would say it's on par with the second movie. I go back and forth between the first and second in terms of which is scarier. I love how minimalistic and yet somehow all over the place the effects are. You can really tell Pelly was learning as he went a lot of the scares are heavily reliant on sound and again audience expectations there are quite a few long stretches of time where not a lot is happening which makes for a very atmospheric and immersive experience if you're able to lend yourself to it my personal favorite moments are the couple of times as toby is sort of experimenting with possessing katie at least that's how I've always interpreted it. Katie gets out of bed and just stands there in the dark, staring at Mika for literal hours. When I first saw that, it was terrifying. We also get some classic spiritual scares, like when the psychic comes to their house for the second time and he won't step any further inside than the foyer because he can sense the demon doesn't want him there. And then of course you have Mika's death entirely off screen. Don't get me wrong, I was over the moon when we actually got to see his death in the marked ones, but I love that they chose not to shoot it for this first movie. I'm a woman of simple, tastes and simple things are what scare me. Paranormal activity has simplicity in spades. Obviously this is incontrovertible evidence that evil forces came from beyond the grave to move your keys. How well does it justify the use of its cameras? Pretty well. I would say the use of the cameras is a little bit better justified once you've seen the second film. There are definitely moments here where I feel like, okay, But why? At one point, they're just filming themselves eating dinner, looking traumatized, and I just don't understand what the point of that is. What I really like most about the camera use in this one is the camera acting. Katie hates the camera. She doesn't want it in the house. She doesn't want Mika using it. She feels like it's exacerbating the situation, and she's right. So whenever he hands her the camera and tasks her with filming, the angles and the shots, they all feel lazy and disinterested. Whereas when Mika is holding it, he's much more invested in actually catching the stuff on camera so there's a lot more attention to detail a lot more investment i think that kind of balances out any superfluous filming and overall the camera uses it's pretty nice how much do i care about the characters. So, okay. The characters are the biggest reason why this isn't higher up on my list, why Paranormal Activity 2 is just slightly above it. I think Katie's all right. I prefer her as a villain as the films progress and she becomes kind of the big bad of the franchise. I like her a lot more. The main problem I have is I'm a little irritated by her because Mika is so fucking awful. Mika is not just my least favorite character in the Paranormal franchise. He's one of my least favorite fictional characters in general. He's a horrible, horrible person. He's such a tool. Have I mentioned that I hate Mika? And unfortunately, because of this like vehement hatred that I have for Mika, it's really frustrating to watch Katie spend so much of this movie just begging him to stop antagonizing the presence in their home. He refuses to listen to her. He makes fun of the demon. He talks shit. He won't let. Katie demonologist, insists on using the camera despite her expressing over and over again that she feels it's making things worse. He goes out and gets a Ouija board after she makes him promise not to. And he keeps referring to what's happening to them as cool even though Katie is noticeably terrified by it. I feel like we should just retitle the first paranormal activity begging your boyfriend not to be a douchebag. Oh, Mika, stop. Mika, please, will you give me five minutes? Mika, I really don't want you to go up there. Please. Where are you going? Mika, come back. Oh my God, Mika, come back down. Come on. Mika, please, come on. Mika, please be careful. Could you exactly. please just get away from me with that camera? Would you stop following me with the camera? Come on, Mika, let's go. Please, 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 please. please. I think if I had liked Mika, this one would have been placed over the second film on the list, but God, Mika's the worst! I do like the psychic who comes to their house. I think he's really one of the only other characters in this movie. I mean, we do see who I believe is supposed to be Katie's sister, Christy, played by a different actress in this one, but we don't really get a whole lot of her. We just know she likes to make jewelry with Katie, and at one point she asks them a couple of general voice of reason questions, but there isn't really a whole lot to her character. So yeah, we're pretty much alone with Katie and Mika through the majority of the film. Then, of course, we have the bonus question. Does this film contribute to the lore in a meaningful way obviously it's the first film it created the lore so this um let's call it a haunting has happened to you before moving into this house yes um it started when i was eight all in all this was the flagship it was the pioneer and although it may not be my favorite film in the franchise it will always have a special place in my heart as it laid the foundation for other films that have had a really big impact on me i'm not even someone who's a huge fan of ghost stories or demonic possession stories you know i prefer the more human side of horror typically speaking so the fact that these movies work for me i just i don't know i really dig them and i really like the first Number four on the list is the full-fledged prequel, Paranormal Activity 3. You know, I've been hearing these noises in the girls' room lately. I don't know. I feel like it's... Something weird's going on. Directed by Ariel Shulman and Henry Joost, written by Christopher Landon, Paranormal Activity 3 takes us back to the 80s to young Katie and Christy and their initial interactions with Toby and the midwives. We have the girls, their mother Julie, Julie's boyfriend Dennis, all living together in yet another McMansion in what I can only assume are the suburbs. This is another fairly straightforward story of a family being terrorized by a demonic presence in their home with a neat twist at the end. And if you're like me and you're a sucker for 80s nostalgia, this, this is a good film for The fashion, the hairstyles, the interior design, it all feels very authentic to the era, which is fun, and it's always nice to see any found footage movies set a little further back in time. This film also feels like it was made with a lot of love for the original, and it answers a couple of questions I personally didn't know I had, which I appreciate. Is it scary? I think so. It's not the scariest, but it does feature one of my favorite scares from the franchise, featuring Johanna Brady of Video Game High School in a frill skirt and a four-foot-tall sheet ghost, so that's nothing. if not a good time. And I think the performances really sell the scares in this one too, particularly Christopher Nicholas Smith as Dennis and Dustin Ingram as Dennis's assistant, Randy. I think one of the reasons why the scares might be a little less memorable for me in this one is that for the most part, we're seeing more overt demonic fuckery. Like there's a moment where Katie gets lifted up into the air by her hair, which is an effect they also used in, I think it was the first Conjuring film. And I just, I don't like that effect. I think it's difficult to make that look real or frightening. This film also heavily embraces the trope of the little girl has an imaginary friend, and the imaginary friend is actually evil, which has over time become one of my least favorite tropes in the horror genre. That being said, I do really enjoy Jessica Tyler Brown's performance as young Christy. I think she did a really great job. And I'll talk a little bit more about why I liked her, oddly enough, when I get to another movie. (laughs) So a lot of the horror in this one does feel a little tired, but there still are some freaky moments. The oscillating fan was a brilliant decision, in my opinion, and the Bloody Mary scene with Katie and Randy was tense and exciting. Oh, and I love Grandma Lois she scares the hell out of me, so it gets major points for her. How well does it justify its cameras? I think they're really well justified for the time period. They established that Dennis is a videographer. I think that honestly would have been one of the only ways to believably explain the presence of that many video cameras in an 80s household, because although plenty of families had them, like my family had a video camera in the late 80s, it just wasn't a common thing for people to have a bunch of them. The first footage we see is of a birthday party, and then again to celebrate a loose tooth, then picture day, I would have been pretty much exactly Christie's age at this time, and those are all reasons that we would have had the camera on in my house. Eventually, Dennis sets up a few cameras to try to capture the weird things that are happening, which feels true to the spirit of the earlier films. So yeah, all in all, I feel like they justify the cameras fairly well. How much do I like these characters? I think Dennis is a fun and sympathetic protagonist. I like him a lot, and this was the first time in the franchise that we had had a lead male protagonist, so that was a little refreshing. I like Randy as well. It's nice, that Dennis has an ally through the whole situation, someone who believes him. I feel like this harkens back to and expands upon the dynamic between Christy and Allie in the second movie. And then obviously there's Grandma Lois. We don't get much of her, but what we do get is mortifying and lovely. I also get a kick out of Julie when she's stoned. She's stupidly cute. What, Joyce? Yes, boys? Dennis, I can't believe you're filming me. Smilk. Yeah, <laughs> I'd For the bonus question, does the film contribute to the lore in a meaningful way? Definitely. We get a little bit more context, a little more backstory, it fleshes out the lore in hindsight beautifully, I think, and best of all, we get some fun insight into not just the relationship between Katie and Christy, but the relationship between Katie and Toby, which was not something I was expecting and is my absolute favorite thing about this film. Toby does not seem to like Katie at all. And that adds another layer of enjoyment to this, the second, and the first. Films in that order. Can you imagine how irritated Toby must have been to be transferred to Katie? All these years later, he has spent all this time probably watching Christy just waiting for her to have a son, and then she has one. He spends even more time gathering his energy so he can possess her and take the baby that he was promised. He's just about there, and then bam, he wakes up in the house of that bratty ass kid from the 80s and her mind numbingly irritating boyfriend. I'm just saying, if I were Toby, I would have been pissed. Overall, I'd say there isn't a whole lot I don't like about this movie. I think the reason it's a little bit lower down on my list is just that comparatively, you know, I like the characters, but not as much as the marked ones. It's creepy, but not as scary as the second film. It is inventive, but not nearly as much as the first. It's not my favorite, but it's definitely not my least favorite. Next up, at number five on the list, is still a film that I enjoy, but it's definitely the first film in the franchise to present more problems than solutions, and that is Paranormal Activity 4. His name's Robbie, and he lives across the street. These are good facts. Directed again by Ariel Schulman and Henry Juice, written by Christopher Landon, Paranormal Activity 4 is a direct sequel to the second film that attempts to answer the question of just what happened to Katie and Hunter. It takes place in another suburb in Henderson, Nevada, and we have again a kind of nuclear family. Of course, this one is in a bit of turmoil. We have Doug and Holly, a married couple who don't get along at all, their teenage daughter, Alex, who is the protagonist of the story, and their adopted son, Wyatt. Across the street from them lives another boy around Wyatt's age, named Robbie whose mother is hospitalized and he comes to stay with Alex's family for a little while while she recovers. It's gradually revealed that Wyatt is actually Hunter and that Robbie's quote mother is Katie. She's moved close to Wyatt and used Robbie to help lure Wyatt away from his adopted family. Things come to a head with Alex and Wyatt's parents being killed as well as Alex's boyfriend Ben and Alex ends up across the street beset upon by what looks to be over a hundred witches. So when I say that this film presents more problems than solutions I want to be clear. I do like this movie. It's just a little too messy for my taste. It goes a little too far in trying to flesh out the lore and it can be pretty confusing. It's also not very scary. So let's just jump right into that. How scary is this movie? I would say not very. Each film in this franchise features some kind of haunted toy and the toy in this film is an Xbox Connect. So they have this gimmick where they're using the tracking dots to create visual horror and it is creative. It really is. But it just doesn't freak me out the way that it has some viewers. And Robbie is unsettling, but I find him far more entertaining than scary. I get a huge kick out of Robbie. He is so fucking bizarre. He has absolutely no chill, and I love it. He cracks me up. Want to meet Robbie's friend? Yeah. Who? He's right there. Oh, cool. Yeah, I see him. Who is you he? You cannot here? see him. What? Yes, I can. Like, no, he's can. right there. No, Hi. Oh, it's nice to meet you. Yeah. I know you're pretending. They do play a lot with the stable cameras, like Alex's camera on her laptop, which does force you to look really hard at the background, but the delivery for those scares often feels a little underwhelming. It's like they held back too much in all the wrong places and then went too far in others. There's also a moment, okay, so this... I don't really know how relevant this is to analyzing how frightening the film is, but it's just the weirdest moment in this movie to me. So if anybody out there listening has any insight into this, I would love to hear it. There's a moment where Holly is following a cooking tutorial in her kitchen, which is larger than my entire apartment, by the way. And when she turns her back to the counter, the knife she was using to chop vegetables goes flying up and presumably sticks to the ceiling. She can't find it. She ends up grabbing a new knife. And then later that night at dinner, Alex is actually looking almost directly at the point in the ceiling. Where one would imagine the knife would be, but she doesn't see it. None of them do. And then a long time later, I would say I, I think it's right before Doug dies. The knife just falls back down and sticks into the counter. It kind of freaks him out for a second. What the hell even was that? What, what what was the purpose of that? I know Wyatt had called out to his mother to get her attention, and when her back was turned, that's when the knife goes up to the ceiling. And then he's like, "Never mind." And then she goes back to what she was doing. So I mean, was that Wyatt demonstrating one of his abilities by sucking the knife up? To to the ceiling from the second floor. I was really hoping that that knife would come back in a more violent way, but it, it doesn't. It's It just feels very meh. Unfortunately, those are the kinds of questions that come up a lot throughout this movie. It does entertain me, but not nearly as much as the ones that came before it. The pacing feels a little off and because of all of that, the scares are just not quite as effective. How well does it justify the use of its cameras? Not as well as the others. We do get some laptop camera action when Ben and Alex are Skyping, but that's a little taxed by the fact that Ben's camera can somehow continue to record Alex when she sleeps, like even after they've hung up. I have no idea what program would facilitate that. So It just feels a little less realistic, but I do commend them for trying to utilize different kinds of cameras in this. You have the Xbox camera, you have the laptop cameras. They tried, which leads me to the next bit of criteria, which is how much do I care about the characters. I don't dislike most of the characters in this movie. However, it is a little harder for me to believe them because this film, more than any of the others, feels incredibly scripted. I do enjoy Alex, uh, who is played by Catherine Newton. I think she's a good final girl. Well, I reluctantly call her a final girl because we don't actually see what happens to her at the end of the film. We don't see her die, though. Alex is another character that I would like to have seen brought back, similarly to how they brought Allie back. She's a sweet, sympathetic teenage girl, and I think Newton has good instincts. Matt Shively, who played Alex's boyfriend, Ben, definitely my favorite character in this movie. I love Ben. It's a circle and a triangle, Alex. Like This it obviously means something. Yeah, it's shapes. And then, of course, Robbie. God, Robbie is hilarious. Brady Allen did so fucking well with that character. He's so weird. Just, I can't stop laughing every time he's on screen. I'm not really a fan of Alex's parents. I don't quite understand the point in making their marriage a tumultuous one. It doesn't really contribute anything at all to the story that they're not getting along. It just sort of makes them both a little unlikable, and there was no reason not to like them, especially considering that they were both going to die. I think it would have been more impactful if they had been a little more likable, and I know I say that a lot, but I mean it a lot. And then Wyatt is, he's okay. He's cute. He just doesn't really have much of a personality. So I would say about half of the characters are relatable, and fun. Does the film contribute to the lore in a meaningful way? I'm gonna have to go with no on this one. We do get to see Katie again, but all her reappearance does at this point is just raise a lot of questions that go unanswered. Where has she been? This film takes place several years after the end of the, the second film. Where the hell has Katie been all this time? Why did she give Hunter up for adoption? I mean, did she give him up for adoption or was he taken away from her? Did Toby just grossly overestimate his ability to deal with things like diaper changes and regular features and shit why wouldn't she have taken the baby back to the midwives to raise him has she been possessed this whole time or is she acting of her own volition and if she's acting of her own volition how did that happen and then the other question i mean i love robbie but who the hell is he whose child is robbie how did he i mean does he belong to somebody else from the midwives coven is he another little boy who's being groomed for possession because it doesn't really seem like it he seems more like a child who was raised by the midwives he knows a lot about what's going on who is he and where did he come from? Why are there so many midwives at Katie's house? This is why this film is lower down on the list for me more than anything. It's just, it's one of the more convoluted and confusing movies of the franchise. I know it sounds like I dislike the film. I really don't. I just don't love it either. It's very middle of the road for me. All right, number six on my list. Is the seventh installment, the latest installment in the paranormal activity franchise, Next of Kin. This is why I don't like creepy old farms, man. They're always haunted. Directed by William Eubank, who directed Underwater, which, side note, I feel is a tragically underrated film, and then written again by Christopher Landon, he came back to write this one, Next of Kin is not a sequel, it's a reboot, which I think was a huge part of my initial problem with it, because I didn't know that. I safeguarded myself against spoilers so successfully, I wanted to go in as blind as possible, and I think that in this instance that was a mistake, because I just kept waiting, waiting and hoping for something to connect this film to the previous ones, and it just never happened. Granted, I'm not sure knowing it was a reboot would have saved the film much for me, but it would have been nice to know, you know? Next of Kin tells the story of Margot, an aspiring documentarian who was abandoned by her mother as a baby, and later in life is searching for some kind of connection to her birth family. She finds that connection in a young man named Samuel through 23andMe who claims to be a relative of hers. Samuel turns out to be a member of an Amish community. Margot, her friend Chris, who is also her cameraman, and their sound guy Dale travel out to this community to shoot a documentary about Margot reuniting with her long-lost brethren. Once they get to what is an isolated farmhouse, they meet Jacob, the head of the family, and pretty much as soon as they get there, some really strange things start happening. Margot and her friends gradually realize that this community is not quite what it seems, and it turns out that Margot, like her mother, is destined to be the host for a demon that lives in a giant hole underneath a church at the edge of their property. It's revealed that the community is responsible for for safeguarding both themselves and the world from the demon that lives at the bottom of their church hole. They have to manipulate Margot into coming there so that she can host the demon, because without a body, the demon wreaks havoc on the world. It has to have a human body to contain it. I don't, I don't get it. Margot confronts the demon who was wearing her mother's body and ultimately gets away, but because she gets away, the demon escapes and sets fire to the entire farm, killing everyone, and then possesses Samuel, gets into a car. And presumably goes after her. So right from the off describing the plot of this movie, I have problems. Let's just break it down with the criteria. (laughs) How scary is this film? In my opinion, it is not scary. It's much more atmospheric than any of the other paranormal activity films. Part of that is the setting. It is a beautiful setting. And the gorgeous cinematography from Pedro Luke. When you watch The Unknown Dimension, you can tell Pedro was so proud of his camera work in this film. And on one hand, I think he has every right to be. It is such a beautiful movie. On the other hand, though, the cinematography feels wholly inappropriate for a found footage film. It was much too cinematic, it was too clean and beautiful. And tying that into the next bit of criteria, I'm kind of going to lump these two things together, because the justification of the cameras and how fully they missed the mark in this film in terms of camera justification for a found footage movie, it all ties into why this film isn't scary for me. Every couple of minutes, just as I'm starting to kind of fall into this world and and become immersed in the story, the camera just yanks me back out. The whole film just, it gives me whiplash. For example, one of the very first conversations we see between Margot and Sam when they meet for the first time at a diner, we establish the presence of Chris, Margot's cameraman. We know that he has a camera. And then later on, we will see Margot using her phone as a camera. But here at the diner, it's just Chris. Margot and Samuel are immersed in a conversation. Chris is filming it. And the camera will cut from one side of the table to the other in the middle of Margot's sentence. And that happens a lot throughout the whole film. This is what I was talking about, about how it's going to sound like I'm nitpicking. But when things like that happen in a found footage movie where there is a cut to a camera that we just can't explain. It doesn't feel like a found footage movie. It feels much more like a documentary style film. But very rarely does Margot ever act as though she's conducting interviews that are relevant to the documentary that she seems to be making. It doesn't really feel like she's playing to an audience. So it just feels messy and also really beautiful at the same time. It's so strange. (laughs) Something else that really kills it for me is that the jump scares are scored. Why would you score jump scares in a found footage movie? doesn't doesn't make any sense. So yeah, unfortunately, I just I can't get immersed enough in the film to be scared. I think that there was potential in this story. I really do. Folk horror and found footage, they go so well together. Blair Witch Project, Willow Creek, and I loved the idea of a paranormal activity film set out on a farm in the middle of nowhere. I was so excited, but unfortunately, the folk horror aspect never quite clicks, and I didn't find the film scary. So how much do I care about the characters? I like Jacob, portrayed by Tom Newicki. I thought he did a wonderful job with the character of Jacob as he was written. I loved Sarah. She was my only daughter, but she cared for nobody but herself. And I liked Samuel at first, but again, that was because I thought... I kind of thought he might have been Robbie. I just kept trying to connect things back. That was was my fault. Chris is fine. There's a moment where he's out in the field fixing the generator. He brought his camera for some reason. Really don't know why he needed his camera to fix the generator in the middle of the night, but... (laughs) Sorry, I'm just bitching at this point. When Chris gets out to the field to fix the generator, he gets startled by a scarecrow, and he just instinctively punches it. I really like that. That was my favorite moment in the movie. I did like the delivery driver who reveals to the guys that the family isn't actually Amish. Oh, and the witch at the bottom of the hole. She was neat. Does it contribute to the lore in a meaningful way? I think that's kind of an unfair question because it doesn't connect back to the original lore at all. It's creating new lore. So maybe I could just look at it like that. Is the new lore a meaningful one? It's confusing. I really don't understand the logistics, the demon having to have a body or it'll wreak havoc on the world. And I definitely don't understand the motivations of the community members of Samuel's family because they're depicted as being so creepy. From the very beginning, we are presented with this. Really shifty, scary community of people, deeply devoted to pretending to be Amish for some reason. But as things unfold, we begin to realize that what they're actually doing is protecting themselves from the demon at the bottom of their church hole. So why are they so creepy? I don't get it. I mean, some of their creepy behavior can be attributed to the demon itself and its energy. Like at one point, there's an elderly woman peeling her hand like it's a potato. She doesn't realize she's doing it. That. certainly be the demonic influence. But then on the other hand, you have a dinner scene where you have a small group of children that come in and sing to them before their meal. Everybody around the table, the members of the community seem very happy and jovial, but the way that it's shot, crazy, awkward angles, really dark, spooky lighting that makes these people look like monsters. I feel like there are other films that have done this much better. The first one that comes to mind is The Ritual, based on a novel by Adam Neville, which I recently read, actually, and it's amazing. In that film, you have a cult of people who are terrified of and essentially enslaved by a monster that they worship but they worship it out of fear and they really convey that well. Everything about that cult of people suggests we worship this thing but we're terrified of it. I never really get a solid impression in that vein from Samuel's family. Are they bad people or are they good people who make sacrifices which is bad in order to protect the world from Asmodius? I really hate to be so hard on this film. I wish I had more good things to say about it. I will probably continue to revisit it to try to kind of understand it a little bit better and appreciate it more. I really like Christopher Landon as a writer, and I like William Eubank as a director, but for now I can only say when it comes to this, the uh, soft reboot of Paranormal Activity that is next of kin, I'm a little underwhelmed. Last and least, I'm sure you've figured out by now, at the very bottom of my list, is the sixth film in the franchise, Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension. What if the witches are using them in some kind of ritual to to give Toby a human body? What? Directed by Gregory Plotkin, who was the editor for most of the previous Paranormal Activity films, The Ghost Dimension tells the story of Ryan Fleege, who, along with his wife Emily and their seven-year-old daughter Leela, have recently moved into, you guessed it, a suburban McMansion. Once settling in, Ryan finds an old video camera that looks kind of like it's from the 80s, but it has a bunch of extra working parts inside of it. He quickly discovers the camera is capable of picking up energies that are, um, like, it's the ghost dimension. The camera can see into the ghost dimension. <laughs> Along with this video camera, Ryan also finds a bunch of cassette tapes. The cassette tapes contain footage of Katie and Christy when they were little after their parents were killed being brainwashed by the midwives. At this same time, Ryan's daughter Leela suddenly has an imaginary friend whose name is Toby. It turns out that young Christy in the past was able to see the Fleege family in the present, and Leela has a connection to the girls, as well as Toby. She assists in giving Toby a living body. So somehow. There's a portal that opens above Leela's bed that leads back in time to when Katie and Christy were little. Eventually, Leela goes into this portal, and Emily runs in after her to save her, but it's too late. Toby has a body. Did I explain that well at all? (laughs) This film was nominated by the way for Worst Film at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards in 2016 for good reason. Unlike Next of Kin, which, I mean, that's a new film. I had really high hopes for it. I stupidly did no research going in. The wound from Next of Kin is still a little fresh, Ghost Dimension is an entirely different story. This film may be terrible, but I love how terrible it is. It is incredibly sad, though, because this was Gregory Plotkin's time to shine. After editing the majority of the paranormal films that came before this, and being just as contributory to its story as everyone else involved, they finally put him in the director's chair, and then they screwed him over. Paramount wanted so badly to do a 3D film, and they were pushing so hard for something bigger and better. There is a delicate line, and if you cross it, you your film gets ridiculous and you lose sight of what makes your movie special. And Ghost Dimension, just none of it works. So how scary is this movie? It's not. There is just nothing about it that freaks me out. Part of this, I think, is that they were really preoccupied with the special effects, right? But for whatever reason, it seems like they didn't want to spend a whole lot of money on them because they look very low rent. And it's such a CG heavy movie. It is chock-a-block full of really terrible looking computer graphics. And the film itself doesn't look all that great either because they kind of ran the footage from the spirit camera through what feels kind of like a vintage TikTok filter. And then there's Leela. Mommy, I said I'm fine here. That's enough. We're going downstairs right now. First of all, we've already seen a little girl around Leela's age talking to Toby, and she's the only one who can see him, and it's creeping everybody in the family out. This is definitely an instance where I understand the criticism that the films are repetitive, because in this case, they they just 100% used the exact same thing. So I kind of feel like at this point, the studio had forgotten what made Paranormal Activity so special. Between the Discount Christie, the low-budget, CG-heavy special effects, and some of the story elements that they introduced, this feels more like a parody of a paranormal activity film. It's impossible to be scared by it because it is just so utterly ridiculous. How well does it justify the use of its cameras? It tries really hard. I mean, obviously, if I found a camera that could see into the spirit realm, I would use it all the time. So I kind of get why Ryan would have it on constantly, but they don't use it in the way that I feel like they should. They should use it more as a tool, almost as a weapon. You know, If you have a camera that can see into another dimension and something from that dimension is terrorizing your home, why aren't you utilizing the camera to navigate and to try to better understand what you're up against? They don't really do that. They just sort of use the camera in a way that's similar to all of the other handheld cameras in the franchise. The fact that it's a magic camera doesn't even really come into play much. How much do I care about the characters? The dynamic between Ryan and his brother is kind of cute at the beginning, but it doesn't last. And both Lila and Emily are taxing on my nerves in the same way that Katie and Mika were taxing in the first film. In the first film, you have Mika consistently acting like a tool katie spending the majority of the film just begging him to be a better person in the ghost dimension it's leela acting like an outright sociopath completely shut down never communicating with her parents when they want her to and you have emily constantly trying to reach her in a way that has just proven ineffective over and over again in paranormal activity 3 christy did have a relationship with toby but she herself wasn't evil she was being manipulated by something that was at no point did you feel like she was a horrible child you cared about her. You sympathize with her. Leela is just fucking evil. It's the only explanation for why she behaves the way she does. There are so many moments where she says nothing, emotes nothing, and it's not scary. It's just irritating because right next to her are Emily and Ryan going, Leela, 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 Leela. Leela! I realize we weren't given much time to adapt as this whole thing goes down over a period of like a week and a half. But after the 50th time of asking your daughter to answer you or telling her to do something that she refuses to do, one would think you would realize she's not going to do what you want and just work forward from there. We also get to see so little of Leela before she starts acting like this. It's just, it's difficult to care. Our daughter is talking to ghosts. I want to reiterate that I am entertained by how bad this movie is, and I think the best policy with any paranormal movie is to not take them too seriously. As I said at the beginning of this episode, they are fun, supernatural fluff. Bear that in mind as I move on to the bonus question, because I am inevitably going to rant does this film contribute to the overall lore in a meaningful way absolutely not this film made what i believe to be the worst decision in terms of writing that any of the paranormal activity films ever have and that decision was to create the character of kent you see through him christy let him show you what he sees let him take you there why? Just why? Whose idea was this? Who thought that Kent was a good idea? At the end of Paranormal Activity 3, after Julie and Dennis are killed and Grandma Lois takes the girls up the stairs, Ghost Dimension would have us believe that Grandma Lois led the girls to an upstairs bedroom where this cult leadery guru-looking motherfucker with a ponytail has been sitting and waiting to spend several long years brainwashing slash psychically training them for some ridiculous reason. Grandma lois behaves in a kind of submissive and almost worshiping way to him which pisses me off (laughs) Lois was like the matriarchal monster up to this point, you know? And now she's answering to this joker. Also, Katie and Christy, if you'll remember, they have no recollection of the time in their lives when their mother was killed. And that was believable. They were like, what, six and nine years old when that happened? It's not hard to accept that they could have blocked that out. But now we're supposed to believe that several years later, when Katie is obviously 13 or 14 years old, they've been working with Grandma Lois and Kent for years, practicing Christy's psychic projection abilities. Katie even had a predetermined role in this whole story, which completely negates everything that happens in the first couple of films. Kent says that Katie is going to be needed because of her strength. Fucking Kent! (sighs) Okay, I'm done. All of this being said, I do know that there are some people out there who really enjoy the Ghost Dimension. Most of the people that I've talked to in recent weeks who've said they really like it follow that up by saying they're not big fans of the paranormal franchise in general, and I find that interesting. I think maybe if you didn't have a pre-existing emotional attachment to the paranormal films, maybe the Ghost Dimension is a lot less absurd. It's hard for me to watch this and divorce myself from the films that it's building upon. I know I've been really unkind to it, but if you are somebody who enjoys either Next of Kin or The Ghost Dimension or both, I would absolutely love to hear what it is you like about these films. Please, help fix them for me. (laughs) So that was it. That was my official ranking of the paranormal activity movies. I came a little unglued there in the end. As I said, this isn't my favorite horror franchise, but it has become one of my favorite found footage franchises. Most of the movies in it are fun and creative, and if you don't take them too seriously, she says ironically, if you can give yourself over to the formula, most of these films can be pretty scary as well. I never would have imagined I would become such a fan of them, or found footage in general. Over the years it's just grown on me like a moss. And now now there are tons of found footage films that I just can't get enough of. One of my absolute favorite found footage films, thank you, Rory, for introducing me to it, is Willow Creek, which was directed by Bobcat Goldthwait and stars Bryce Johnson and Alexi Gilmore as a couple who trek out to the woods to find proof of the existence of Bigfoot. Creepy as hell. And it features one of my all-time favorite single-shot scenes. It's like a 15-minute long scene. Thanks to my mother, I recently watched Gonjam Haunted Asylum, a South Korean horror film which centers around a group of internet paranormal investigators who travel to an abandoned asylum for a live broadcast. And that film scared the fuck out of me definitely one of the scariest found footage films i've seen in a long time i also recently sat down and watched the mcpherson tape for the first time my curiosity was killing me and i really enjoyed it i mean at this point it is a bit more of a novelty than anything because it feels so dated but god it was so much fun to watch i also recommend frankenstein's army directed by richard Rothhorst. it's one of the oldest found footage films and by that i mean it's set farther back in time than almost any other found footage movie. And it feels more like a proof of concept for a video game than a film at times, but oh my god, it is so action-packed. Brutally violent, so much fun. And then lastly, I just wanted to take a second um, to speak out in defense of a film that I feel gets a lot of unnecessary flack, and that film is Unfriended. I love Unfriended, man. Similar to the first Paranormal Activity, I feel that Unfriended was a bit of a pioneer. I really enjoy the performances from everyone on the cast, so I just wanted to throw that out there because it gets a lot of hate, and I think that it deserves a little bit more love. If you have any found footage recommendations or thoughts at all on any of the Paranormal Activity films, please feel free to reach out to me, I would love to keep this conversation going. There are a number of ways you can accomplish that. You can look me up on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast and you feel compelled to support it financially for some reason, you can head over to buy me a coffee forward slash Final Girl Friday and kick in a couple of bucks. I hope you guys are enjoying your December thus far. If I don't make it back by the end of the year, happy holidays and happy new year. Stay safe, stay sane, never jump into a church hole. And until next time, creep it real.